Hey, I want to thank uh, two, one brand new member of our worship team and one sort of relatively new member. Uh, so, Emmalyn, thank you for playing flute, and Taylor, thank you for singing this morning, and the rest of our team that serves us faithfully uh, here on the, the platform and up in the booth. Uh, we're grateful. Hey, uh, we're going to be observing Palm Sunday. We're taking a break from our, our Romans series this morning. We're going to be looking at these verses in your bulletin from Matthew uh, chapter 21. And I'm going I'm to particularly call your attention to the bulletin as opposed to your Bibles because there's two sections in bold that I, I would love to have your help, sort of like the call to worship. Uh, so you'll see uh, down in, what is that, verse 9, where the crowd is shouting Hosanna to the Son of David. If you all could read that part as bold when it comes. And then uh, kids who are remaining, like, you know, 18 and below, how about that? Uh, on, on the next panel, the third panel over on verse 15, they're, they're, they're in bold doing Hosanna to the Son of David. So um, let me read now God's word out of Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read... Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for your word. It's your word, and in it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would reveal him to us anew today. Lord, for many of us, we pray for a clearer understanding of who he is and his claims. 
For some of us, we pray for just a brand new understanding, a revolution in our way of looking at Jesus, his claims, his actions, ultimately his cross and his resurrection. Lord, for every single one of us here, we pray for just a, a greater view of the glory that you have, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so this morning, I'm going to be borrowing from um, what is, a, it's called a trilemma. It's, uh, it's three options, and you, you have to choose one of the three, and this trilemma was made popular by an author um, in the 20th century named C.S. Lewis. He, uh, he talked about how if you look at the, the claims, if you look at the actions of Jesus, you really, you really it, it boils down to one of three options in your conclusion of his identity. Either uh, he was just bold-faced making the whole thing up, you know, had this Messiah complex and was just, uh, you know, telling lies left and right and bringing everybody along under his delusion. Uh, so either he was really aware of what he was doing and intently manipulative and deceitful about it, or he was just absolutely off his rails, crazy person, and um, really wasn't responsible for his actions, nonetheless just enveloped the whole nation in this uh, insanity of, of, you know, his, his delusion. Um, and then the third option, if he's not lying and if he's not uh, a lunatic, then Lewis says, then he's got to be a lord. You know, you really don't have a whole lot of other options. There, um, for, for our purposes this morning, we're talking about Jesus sort of in that same, that same triad, that same trilemma. Either, uh, either he's crazy um, or you know he is the Christ either uh, he is going around and telling everybody you know stuff that isn't true and he's a con man or he is the Messiah and so we're, we're using that same trilemma there's there's a fourth option that that uh, sort of modern um, skeptics and uh, and folks who aren't, aren't exactly a fan of the Bible's revelation of Jesus there's a fourth uh, L in the category of liar, lunatic, and lord, and they, they use the expression legend. And they go, when it comes to this book, you're, you really can't trust what's in here because we all know that, you know, these stories were just stories and they were transcribed or they were orally passed along and, and they just got distorted and they got, you know, mixed up in their message along the way. And so we really can't trust what's in the Bible. And I understand where, where that thinking comes from. And I understand some of the arguments. Um, we're not going to have the time this morning to address why the gospel accounts are reliable, but I can promise you that Jesus is more than just a, a, a Galilean version of Johnny Appleseed, um, you know, sowing the seed of the gospel everywhere he goes. Johnny Appleseed was a real person, but, uh, but legend has sort of eclipsed a, a, a clear biography of, of who he was and what he did. And, and we look at Jesus sometimes through that same lens. You know, well, we knew he was a real person, but we're not exactly sure of all the, the facts surrounding him. We could go into why the Gospels are reliable. I'm not going to do that this morning. What I want to, if, if that somehow rings a bell with you and if that resonates with you, yeah. I don't, I don't really know that I can trust the Gospels. And I'm not really sure that, you know, 
Jesus is everything that the Christians and the church say he is. Let me, let me ask you this. All I want you to do this morning is, is make sure at least, make sure at least, even if you think this is legend, make sure that at least you know what the legend says. At least make sure you know what the Bible says about Jesus because um, it, it would not be a wise thing um, to say, well, I'm, I think all that in the Bible about Jesus is a legend and not actually know what it says. Reject that even when you don't know what it says. That's like me saying, I don't like Romeo and Juliet because I don't like comedies. Um, anyway, so just, just understand what the message is and you know, then draw, draw your conclusion. So let's just talk about this whole con man, um, crazy man, or, or Christ. Uh, view of Jesus, and you really get a, a great picture of that trilemma as Jesus is marching into Jerusalem. Uh, let me let me let me begin with a different account of this triumphal procession. This time from Luke 19, because Luke records some details that Matthew didn't give us. Luke in, in chapter 19 says that as he was drawing near, already. On the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And here's what I think is, is important. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I think it's important that we see the reaction of those who very clearly understand the implications of what's going on. As Jesus is riding this donkey, heading into Jerusalem, the crowds are shouting and quoting the Psalms, the Messianic Psalms, the Psalms of David, pointing to Jesus as the, the new king coming in. Um, let me, uh, let me show you the, the full color image uh, from the front of your bulletin. I, this is a beautiful mural, and I didn't know, I hadn't seen this before this week when I was looking for an image for the front of the, the bulletin, but um, this is a, a wall mural. You can actually see the texture of the bricks above Jesus' head in the background, the sky. Uh, and so you've got this, this procession of people and I want to just point out two things. The first one is just a, something that I, I think is great, how the artist gives us a sense of who's who in this image. Can you, and I'll ask you, can you pick out Judas? Do you know who Judas is? Which one is Judas? What, what color is he wearing? Red, yeah. And he's, and he's, he's the only one looking, looking away. He's looking back. He's like, I just, this is not what, what I thought I'd signed up for. You know, here's Jesus and Judas, along with all the other, you know, expectant hopes of Israel was looking for somebody who's not going to ride in on that. A, a donkey? Are you kidding me? Look at the proportion and the scale of Jesus to that donkey. That donkey looks like he can't take another step because of this humongous person on the back of him. No, our king is supposed to come in on a war horse and vanquish these, uh, these Romans. Let me uh, read to you. I like how Tim Keller puts it in his book, King's Cross. He says, here was Jesus Christ, the king of authoritative, miraculous power, riding into town on a steed fit for a child or a hobbit. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, you know, Bill the Pony uh, in Samwise. So it's just something out of place here. Uh, the Pharisees are, they are quick to realize, wait a minute, this isn't right. So there's two ways to view their reaction. At best, I think what their, what their concern is when they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. This isn't proper. Um, I think at best what they're concerned about is if, if they're among the crowd and if they're in that procession, you got to think, well, maybe they're somehow maybe sort of friendly to what Jesus is doing. They're at least curious or they're trying to figure him out. And they look at this scene and they go, this isn't right. Some, a, a real rabbi, a proper um, messiah, you know, wouldn't let this get out of hand, wouldn't let it go to his head. And they're looking at Jesus as somebody who uh, is starting to allow praise to come to him that shouldn't, um, that it's starting to, to, he's starting to let his ego get in the way of what's going on. And, and in that sense, he's being deceptive. He's not being who he first said he was. And he's becoming somebody else. Like, I think a modern way to put it is, if you take everything that is ridiculous and, and even just downright wrong about the, the worst of the televangelists, right? Uh, greedy, slimy, just fake. Um, and if, and, if, and if you think about, all right, for all that they present themselves to be, when they began in ministry, do you think they, do you think they began preaching? Do you think they began um, their, their services with the, the expressed intent, I am going to become a charlatan. I'm going to become a con artist. And I'm going to milk all these people for all their money, and I'm going to use the gospel to do it. Maybe... Maybe, maybe, a, maybe a few, all right? We know the heart is wicked and desperately sick. Who can know it? But I, I want to believe that a bunch of these guys, they started off thinking, all right, I'm, I'm in this for, for the gospel. I'm in this for Jesus. And, and they started preaching, and the response was great. And people started saying, wow, we can't believe the things that you're, you're teaching us. This is wonderful. Uh, we want to hear more. We want to get you a broader audience. We want to put you on TV. And so, you know, everything just kind of ratchets up and the praise and adulation comes toward them and they just start believing them in press. And before long, they've got, you know, no accountability. Nobody around them is going to challenge them. And they just start believing their own stuff and they become, you know, even like the frog in the kettle just without noticing when or exactly how, but now they're a con artist. And at best, I think that's really where these... Um, these Pharisees are going with their concern. Hey, teacher, rebuke uh, your disciples. But at worst, at worst, we see a, another uh, passage in Mark chapter 3. Um, this time they're reacting to something else that Jesus says and does when you know, all the crowds are gathering around him. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, this is in Mark 3, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And then Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Uh, John 10 tells us the reaction of others who said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Um, so all of these opinions about uh, different, uh, different ideas of what's making Jesus say what he says and do what he does, some are saying, you know, he's just outright 
evil. That his deception is of such a nature that, um, that this has gone too far and there's something really evil about him, something demonic about him. Um, you know, the concern to shut Jesus up and to silence him and all this is, is really, I think, possibly the reaction of these people who are in power in Jerusalem and they're watching this crowd and they're seeing all the kids with their palm branches and they're hearing all these shouts and they're starting to go, oh no, uh, Rome's going to get involved. Just like um, there had been previous would-be messiahs, a guy named Theudas uh, and a guy named Judas the Galilean, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the Galilean, he had to think of 400 people in his cult and they all thought he was the messiah and uh, so this, this isn't a unique event. There are all kinds of like would-be messiahs. And they see Jesus and they're going, oh no, Rome's going to get involved and we're all going to get killed in this process. We've got to shut them up. Is Jesus a con man? I mean, so give, give the Pharisees some credit. They understand the implications of what's going on. They're not just sort of saying, oh, well, that's nice what Jesus is saying and doing. They're concerned and they want to do something about it because they don't agree with his claims. The other possibility is that Jesus is just a crazy man. And um, turn down to uh, verse 12 in your passage in Matthew 21. And uh, you see again that Jesus enters the temple. And, you know, if you've heard this story before, it, it sounds sort of like, oh, yeah, I expect this to happen. Jesus clears the temple. But if you're, if you're brand new to the Bible or brand new to the church, uh, I would love to know your reaction to this because I, I think if we have fresh ears and fresh eyes, this looks crazy. Jesus enters the temple. He drove out everybody who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he, you know, he's quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations uh, and you've made it into this den of robbers. Um, I want to show you a picture of the temple so you know where Jesus is, what's going on when he clears the temple uh, the temple proper is there in the center, and that, uh, that's a plume of smoke going up from the altar of sacrifices. All around the temple, enclosed in the large you know, rectangular walls, is the court of Gentiles. And those little dots are all the people that the artist has depicted in the court of Gentiles. So, so Jesus comes into the court of the Gentiles, what he sees there is not a place where God is appointed for the nations to come and to meet with God and to worship God and draw near and, you know, have that connection between heaven and earth. Instead, the court of the Gentiles has become a marketplace. I want you to imagine going to, um, to, to meet with God and to worship God uh, at Sharp Shopper on the first of the month. It's not going to happen. It's crazy. Everybody's there. They've just gotten paid, and it's just a mob scene. What about Kroger on Tuesday, senior citizen discount? Just not going to happen. It's not a peaceful place, and you're not going to meet with God. So um, let me get this sort of in a, a, a more contemporary idiom. Um, here's my little visual for this morning. There we go. Uh, in living color. Can you see that? All right. So what did Jesus encounter in the court of the Gentiles? This marketplace. People are coming from all the nations. It's Passover. And they're traveling light. So they're, they've got their money. It's a different currency. They're coming to the money changers. 
you know, and they're, they're getting all their, uh, their money exchanged so that they can go and then buy their animals for sacrifice. So you have, you know, the sheep for sale and the pigeons. So, you know, that was genetically uh, HMO altered, um, GMO, whatever, uh, altered pigeon. And Jesus takes one look at this and he says, um, this is not what the court of the Gentiles is for. The court of the Gentiles is a place for worship, not, not for buying and selling. And, and that, that effectively, that marketplace had blocked access for the nations to come and meet with God, to have their sins forgiven, to receive the pardon and forgiveness from God on high for heaven and earth to come down and, and to meet. So the Gentiles, all the nations, everybody except the Jewish people were excluded from that. And Jesus says, I'm not going to have this. And, you know, and he, and he goes crazy, right? I mean, he does this thing that only a crazy person would do. Goes in and he's tossing the tables and tossing the money around and he's doing like this. And now you think I'm crazy. But let's be real. That's what was going on. And if you're there watching that, watching Jesus shut down the marketplace, what's going through your head? You're either going, okay, I need to pay attention to this one who claims to be the Messiah, or you, you've, you're writing him off. He's crazy. He's dangerous. We need to silence him. We need to get rid of him. Mark 11 gives us this account. He says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard what was going on with Jesus, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So you, you really quickly get this sense of some people are totally on fire and totally following him, and others are going, there is no way this one is our Jewish Messiah in the line of David because otherwise he would not be welcoming all of these Gentiles. Um, you know, so they're thinking he's crazy. This is not a, a new conclusion uh, for Jesus. Earlier in Mark chapter 3, his own family, his mother and his brothers and his sisters come to him and they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. They were ready to do a family intervention with Jesus because they thought he was crazy for saying the things that he said, doing the things that he did. Um, and John 10 kind of gives us this great summary of both those who thought he was the con man possessed by a demon and those who thought he was crazy. John 10 says there was again a division among the Jews because of Jesus's words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Um, you know, they're just saying he's both. Totally write him off. So those are the two um, options. He's either aware of what he's doing and he's, and he's a liar and a con man, or he's just kind of off his rocker and we need to commit him to an asylum. Because how can he truly be God among us? It's not a possibility. That doesn't happen. Nobody has the right or the authority to stand before us and say, I am the bread of life. If you eat from me, 
you will never go hungry again. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He either has the authority to say that, or he's lying, or he's crazy. Let's, let's just check out the third option, that he's the Christ. He's exactly who he says he is. Look at verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, is he just a prophet? Is he just a great prophet? I'm not sure that that's really putting two and two together because um, Jesus was more than a great prophet. And here I want to you know, call your attention to C.S. Lewis's quote. He says that I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept that he was and is God. As God among us, he was possessed not by a demon. He was absolutely single-minded, totally possessed with a zeal and a desire for all of the world to know the glory and the goodness, the love, the holiness, the beauty of his Father. That's what drove him all the time. And I guess you could say he was crazy because nobody or when we, when we see people make great gestures of love, we, we sort of tend to want to write them off because it, it unsettles us. It makes us feel like, well, my gestures of love are not that extravagant, so I certainly don't want my love to come under criticism, so I'm just going to write that person off as a flake or a freak. But what did Jesus do? In his love for us, God so loved the world, you know, he gave his son, and Jesus demonstrates his love for us by laying down his life for us, he loved us so much that, as Francis Chan describes it, it's a crazy love. It's a love that will not allow anything to get in the way of our relationship with God. Not money changers, not pigeon salesmen, and not even sin. You think it's crazy that you know, he would go through the temple overturning tables? What's crazier, doing that or going to a cross? He went to the cross so that even sin wouldn't bar our access to the Father. And that's what separates us from God. We were talking in the Welcome to Tabernacle class before um, the service. Uh, Paul Tripp says that sin is fundamentally antisocial. It corrodes and destroys relationships. That's what sin does between us, you know, people that we sin against, people who sin against us. And that's what sin did with our relationship with God. 
Jesus went to the cross to restore that relationship, to bridge that gap between heaven and earth, to hang there as it is suspended in between both, rejected by both, in order for us who put our faith in him to be reconciled to God. If your faith is in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. If you confess him as Lord and Christ, you are united with him in his kingship. What's true of him is true of you. The pleasure that God the Father has in his only begotten son, God now has in us who are adopted into the family. It's all by faith in Jesus, not from the stuff that we're doing to try to make him love us more, but what Jesus did out of his love for us. So be encouraged. When we believe in Jesus, we really are blessed. We get glory, we get honor, we get, we get peace. We get those blessings. We get the, the release from this perpetual craving to be accepted, uh, to be approved, to measure up, because God says in Christ, you are accepted, you are approved. You measure up because Jesus measured up for you. Great, great comfort in knowing that Jesus is my Savior and He is my Christ, my King. Um, he's the King. He's the Christ. The one who is the ruler of a whole new order of life, who has delivered me so that I can be a part of it, as Richard Lovelace would say. A whole new order of life, a whole new outlook on life. And as we're encouraged by that, we can be challenged by it as well. It's a whole new outlook on life. It's a whole new outlook even on, on what is suffering. Uh, Jesus, it's great when we hear him promise us you know, blessings and glory and peace and uh, honor and so on. Those are fantastic, but we struggle because we can, like the rest of the disciples marching into Jerusalem, shout ourselves hoarse saying, Hosanna. But remember how many of those people just days later were shouting, crucify him. Because if we're going to follow Jesus with all of the glory and the celebration and the good stuff um, going into the city, are we going to follow him all the way through the city and out the other side to Golgotha? A lot of his disciples would not go that far. And why? Because they signed on for the, the Christ of comfort rather than the Christ of the cross. And we do the same thing. Um, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to follow him no matter what. You know? And the funny thing is that what happened to his disciples was their discipleship required discipline, and they said, no, we're not going to go that far. So it's one thing as a disciple to say, you know, all right, bad things happen. Uh, I'm suffering. Uh, I didn't choose this, but God, I'm going to submit to what your plan is for me. But it's a whole other thing to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And not to just use the gospel to make sense of the things that happen to you, but when the gospel so gets a hold of your heart that you're so in love with Jesus and so committed to following him that you actually choose the cross. You choose suffering. Because the road to the cross is the only road that's going to take us to the glory of resurrection. There's no way you're going to get to that standing outside that empty tomb unless you first go to the, the cross. How do you and I need to embrace this? What does this look like? 
It's not, it's not a martyr's wish. It's not a death wish. It's not some fascination with suffering. It's just good old-fashioned discipleship whereby we say, you know what, I'm going to choose the way of the cross in order to experience the power of resurrection on the other side. I'm going to choose suffering. I'm going to choose suffering when it comes to being humble. I'm going to, I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to serve others. I'm going to be humble and even when it wounds my pride to do so, even when it hurts my pride to do so, I'm going to choose humility. I'm going to choose chastity. I'm going to choose sexual purity, even when it aches to choose to be pure. I'm going to choose the cross of generosity, even when it hurts, pinches, it's painful uh, to give sacrificially because of what it means I'm not going to be able to have. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose the cross of kindness even when it is, <laughs> right, literally, even when it, I have to bite my tongue you know, and it just hurts so that I don't say something I'm going to regret, something that's going to hurt somebody. That's, we die a thousand deaths a day if you really add it up. And if you want to follow Jesus, we're going to follow him to the cross first. But if we do follow him to the cross, guess what? On the other side is resurrection. On the other side is the new you, the new me. We become more and more like Jesus, more and more like the men and women and children God made us to be. Pictures of the new creation where sin doesn't beget sin, but sin is forgiven. Newness of life comes. And we start doing life the way that Christ our King wants us to. All through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray for a clear sense of who you are, your, your claims and your actions and how those come to bear on our individual lives and on our, our life as a church, our life as a community. Uh, our lives as a country um, and as a world. We pray indeed for more of your kingdom to come and more of your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you reign as king, as Christ in our hearts? Would you, would you lead us to the glory of resurrection but give us the courage to face that, um, that, that uncomfortable prerequisite of the cross? And Father, would you give us power uh, through the Holy Spirit, to do so. And Lord, I pray uh, for, uh, for those here this morning who are still trying to figure out who, who exactly is Jesus, who maybe have been, have been giving lip service to the creeds and to what church is all about, but need to really settle and need to own this faith as their own. Lord, would you give them the grace of faith in Jesus today? We ask in his name. Amen.